Welcome to The Whole Marketer, where we look at the holistic skills the marketeers of today need to grow the brands and businesses of tomorrow. To ensure marketeers feel supported and empowered to have successful and fulfilling careers and lives as a whole. Hello and welcome to The Whole Marketer podcast. Today's podcast is a technical skill. It's brands. And shortly, I'll welcome today's guest, no other than Daryl Fielding, onto the podcast. But before I do, let's talk about brands today. The role that brands play has evolved over time. From where we started with a trademark on logo to where we are today around developing brands that have a true meaning or purpose around why they exist to benefit our consumers and our customers. For me, brands are one of our many strategic choices and should outline how we are positioning our brand to meet the needs of our consumers or customers in our chosen market or segment. This thinking needs to be done before we think about how we visually bring this brand to life. And on today's podcast, we'll be discussing Daryl Fielding's book, The Brand Book. What I love so much about this book is it's laid out into those elements. First part, strategy. Second part, execution. They go hand in hand. One can't be done without the other. Today's guest, Daryl Fielding, is best known as the architect of Dove's campaign for real beauty. Daryl's career included leadership roles in brand owners, media and advertising agencies. Work-wise, she now combines board roles with a part-time role as a charity CEO. She is a trustee of the British Heart Foundation and the Academy of Ancient Music and Pelican Cancer Foundation and a non-exec director at the Association of Chartered and Certified Accountants. She is a part-time CEO of the Marketing Academy Foundation, which she co-founded, a registered charity enabling career starts for young adults from disadvantaged backgrounds. She has held executive director director roles at Vodafone, Mondelez, independent newspapers and Ogilvy Advertising. She has just published The Brand Book, which I mentioned earlier, a practical nonsense guide to brands drawing on her personal experience and other world-class examples and enjoys delivering keynote speeches on brands, marketing and diversity and inclusion. So Daryl, welcome to the Whole Marketer podcast. Thank you. So as always, we start with a big juicy question and quite a generic big juicy question today for you, Daryl. What is a brand to you? Well, if you ask that question of Google, it will give you 14 million answers. So I definitely wanted to simplify it and certainly didn't research them all. To me, a brand is the combination of the product or service, what you do, and your reputation. And those two things, product and reputation, are inextricably linked together. They inform each other and they draw from each other. And the point of a brand is to add value to the organisation, to hold the producer accountable and to help customers choose. So I think that's it in, in a nutshell from me. Daryl, you are known as an expert in building brands across many different organisations and industries. The amount of hellos I've had to do before we even started today podcast from people that knew I was recording a podcast with you says it all. I have read your fantastic new book, The Brand Book, an insider's guide to brand building for business and organisations. And I absolutely love it. I absolutely love it because it's not theory. It's very much, here's all the tools that you can use. Here's some templates you can use. Here's some examples of how they've been used with different brands. You share a variety of models and checklists for marketers to develop their own brand, but also has a wealth of examples that go beyond the ever-discussed Dove, which includes some of my personal favourites, Loaf and Method, for example. I'm fascinated to know what drove you to write the book. 
(laughs) Thank you for that question. I'm delighted you like the book, actually, because I'd written it very much in my own voice. I've always been temperamentally allergic to jargon. I like plain English. I like common sense. And I wanted to make it a book that everybody could read and get something out of, whether they're, you know, studying marketing at university, whether they're a chief executive or whether they're starting a business. So I think people do seem to be appreciating the way it was written. And that was very, very intentional. Why did I write the book? Well, it's the fourth book I've started and the only one I've finished. So I wanted to write a book before I died. So that's one reason. Why this one? Why did I write this one? The reason really is I think brand is becoming sort of depositioned in organizations these days. And it's being depositioned both at the top of the organization and at the bottom. And I really wanted to pull brand and branding back into its rightful place at the heart of an organization for the reasons I discussed, you know, at the very first question you asked me, actually, you know, what is a brand? A brand is the combination of the product and the reputation. And there's not a chief executive on the planet who won't be caring about those two things. And I think, unfortunately, particularly at the very top of the organisation, sometimes chief executives sort of think brand is the colouring in, the image advertising, the fluffy stuff, and is not as core and as fundamental as it actually is. And at the very worst, you end up with those who, you know, the market department and the people who are activating the brand as sort of being defined in an organization as the stupid people with crayons. And that genuinely drives me mad because the concept of brand is obviously brought to life in a lot of execution, but it is a fundamentally important and strategic concept that is absolutely core and should be at the heart of of every organisation. So I really wanted to bring the brand back to its rightful place at the top of the organisation. Then again, when you look at entry-level marketers in particular, you often find these days, and of course it's absolutely necessary, that there are so many very very deep specialisms in marketing, people doing particularly a lot of the management of digital marketing with paper clear, SEO, programmatic, all of those kind of things that require incredible amount of skill and specificity. They tend not to be trained in brand and branding either. And they often come across brand in the context of the brand police who are the people, you know, telling them what colours they have to have and what tone of voice to use and all those kind of things. And they don't get a particularly favourable impression of it either because it seems to restrain some of their creativity and be very governance-led. And I think that's a tremendous pity as well because if you understand the nature of your brand and you have an idea, if you understand the why and not, you know, the governance of it, then you may be able to find a way to, to bring that idea to life in a way that is fully on brand. So I think in a way it's being depositioned at the top of the organisation and it's also being depositioned at the bottom of the organisation in an unhelpful way. So what I really wanted to do was to remedy that and share a lot of things as well that just give me joy. I find building brands and branding such a wonderful thing to be able to do and I've so enjoyed doing it that actually writing the book was a positive pleasure. 
together. And I hope that energy and enthusiasm transmits. But the enemy really is brand being depositioned across organisations. It needs to get back front and centre and people need to understand how to do it, how to deliver it. I think there is a pattern. We've had an explosion in the last 20 years of businesses that have been created from the internet revolution, if you like, digital businesses, and from smartphones through to apps, through to a huge list of organisations that have just exploded in the digital revolution. And unfortunately, what does happen with those organisations is that there is such an appetite for them when the category is exploding, that an awful lot of the leadership and management is totally devoted to, if you like, supply side, where, you know, they have to just get the stuff out there, make the stuff work, provide it for the customer. And that's a tremendous skill and not to be underestimated. But there is a point where the category saturates and that growth slows and ultimately may flatten. And you often find that the leaders of those organisations are somewhat stumped at that point because they've never had to grow by demand generation and demand creation. And I think they then lack some of the skill and tools that they need to figure out their brand, figure out what makes it resonate with the customer, and then figure out how to innovate against that brand and how to drive demand and appetite for that brand and entice customers to the brand. This was rather the situation I found when I joined the team at Vodafone. You know, they'd had all mobile network operators that had exponential growth, and that was then saturating. And I think there was a real appetite to figure out what to do. But the skills of the organization across the board were somewhat challenged in figuring out how to grow when the category stops growing. So I think that, you know, giving those leaders who think they're masters of the universe have lots of mantras like fail forward fast. Some of the wisdom of being, if you like, a sort of FMCG dinosaur as to how you grow when your category stopped growing, I thought might add a bit of value. So I've seen similar journey. I've seen a similar journey for branding to brands where they are today from a logo, a trademark, to something of aspiration and so on and so forth in consumers' eyes. I've also seen obviously the influx of digitalization and the marketers and their skills that they have been much more focused on being experts in digital, but not understanding necessarily the long-term strategy for their brand or for their business. So I completely echo what you're saying around that brand police, brand not being at the heart of their thinking, but almost being the thing that they see afterwards as a guidelines only for execution. I see all of those things. And one thing that I'm really curious about is the skills piece, because I'm someone who has had many brand management roles myself. But tell me what you think those skills are that you think marketers need to possess to be able to develop a brand today. I think the skills that you need to develop a brand today are threefold, actually. And I think it's the most delicious blend as far as I'm concerned. I think if you're going to be a successful, you know, kind of leader of a brand or manager of a brand, you have to have good commercial skills. You have to understand where the profit pools are, how you drive the profitable growth of that brand. So number one, you have to have really good commercial skills. You also have to have curiosity, understanding, customer empathy. You have to be interested in why people do things, why they're going to like your brand, how they think and 
feel, you have to have that real appetite to understand the users of your brand, whether they're business to business or somebody buying a deodorant, frankly. And then thirdly, I think you have to have a bit of artistic ability. I was a little bit damning about stupid people with crayons earlier in the conversation. But I think if you haven't got some sense of aesthetic, some artistic sense, you probably won't succeed either. You have to be able to bring something to life in a pleasing way or have someone in your team that you give 100% trust to do that for you if you don't have that. So I think probably in order, number one, you have to be commercial. Number two, you have to be curious about the customer. And number three, you need to have some artistic sensibility. I couldn't agree more with all of those skills. Commercial understanding, curiosity, empathy, artistic ability, or as I often say, a way to visually bring that to life to inspire are all skills that I've outlined in the whole marketer book. So it's yeah. great that we are aligned on that. Yeah, I think the visual aspects of brand are often not considered as much as they should be. I think if you just try and find the right app on your smartphone, you can immediately understand, you know, the value of colour, for example. And it seems incredibly basic. You know, an awful lot of this stuff is really fundamental common sense. I mean, I'm constantly confusing train line and right move on my phone. (laughs) You know, this is not, colour is not an aspect that belongs to the dark ages. You know, if you're in gaming, for example, game is driven by the number of players and in-app purchases. And, and if you're in the mood to play some kind of game on your phone, how quickly and which one you pick is a big commercial driver for those enterprises. So, you know, just some really elementary things like how visible is your brand and if you like the context of choice, whether that's on a supermarket shelf, whether it's on your smartphone, whether it's a pure play digital business, or whether it's an FMCG brand that's been around for hundreds of years, you know, picking the mauve one or the pink one is so important. And I did a little analysis of the number of blue apps on my phone screen. It's amazing how few just app icons don't stand out in the way that they could, you know, hats off to EasyJet, frankly, for picking orange and sticking with it. So yeah, some of those really elementary visual aspects are incredibly important and drive the business. And the example that you gave there really makes me think around brands that have forgotten that their competitors are outside of the category that the consumer they're trying to target. Mm. So in that situation, you know, you are a train line user and you are a right move user. We're not just looking at train line app versus another rail app and the colorways, the distinguishing assets and so on. And nor are you looking at right move versus Zoopla versus something else, that competitive context. You're actually thinking about that consumer and where you overlap across multiple different markets and categories. So many people forget that. You know, they look at the archetype and they look at the brand colors that are reflective of the personality that they are trying to convey, but forget that that color is also used by multiple different categories. And therefore, you've got to think about the distinguishing asset against that consumer and their world not just that category. Yes, well, there's so many themes you're bringing out in that observation, Abigail. I mean, you know, you have to map a customer journey, I think, from not just within your own assets, not just within your own website. When you're getting into the marketing, you have to figure out what's the trigger for engaging with you as a business in the first place and map it right through to customer use, sharing, repeat, etc. So that's sort of one theme that you highlighted. And if people are engaged, 
engaging with you on a smartphone, then you have to look at that environment and go, you know, how are we playing there? I wish it were true because, you know, that businesses need to look beyond their category. It is true, but equally true, they need to look at their own blooming category, frankly. Mm. The number of CEOs I've met where I've gone, have you you done a competitive review? And they sort of look at you as if you're suggesting that, you know, they go back to school. And I had this conversation with the chief executive of an ad agency a few years ago. And I said, have you done a competitive review? And I have been in the unfortunate position of trying to select an agency from their website. So I, I sort of slightly have been a customer in that regard. And he sort of rolled his eyes as though, you know, this was far beneath him. And then a few months later, he said, well, I'd look at our competitors. We all say the same. I'm like, I know. And I find a proper, full analysis of your competition. And I literally recommend to businesses that they put it all on a wall, and I mean a literal wall, and they look at every aspect that from the logo to the colour to the positioning statement to everything that brand does that is relevant to that particular category. And they really take a good look at it and look at themselves because my experience of doing that analysis for businesses is everybody is doing the same thing for the same reason. The number of rainbow logos, if you look at diversity consultancies, is disappointing. You know, of course you can see how they got there, but they've all got to the same place. And one of my favourite quotes is from Coco Chanel, which is, to be irreplaceable, one must always be different. And of course, if you're going to be irreplaceable, you'll have to be different. It is such a, a you know wise piece of philosophy, but so fundamentally and irrevocably true. What do you find in business? Everybody copies each other, and yet they somehow hope that they're going to be the customer's favourite brand. Well, how on earth are they going to be the favourite brand if everybody is very, very similar all the same? And I had a little bit of a LinkedIn chit chat with somebody and he particularly liked this comment I'd I'd made. And we came up with something, an acronym, which is a bit like FOMO, but it's actually FOSA, Fear of Standing Alone, which F-O-S-A, which so many brands are afraid to do something significantly different because it's scary to be the different one. But how else are you going to be chosen in preference to everything else? Of course, you have to make sure that that difference is relevant and interesting and motivating to the customer. But that's what companies need to figure out and to embrace. And it can be as much about the what as the how. It can be a combination of differentiation and distinctiveness. And I know there's a war waging on which matters more. My view is they both matter. You can combine them to create something unique unique, but figuring out why you're different, why should a customer pick you rather than somebody else will elevate you above the other two aspects, which is availability and price. Both very, very important. But if you're equal on availability and price, or you don't want to start a price war, you've got to figure out what makes you special. And so many organizations don't. I find it baffling. And it's a very salutary experience if you do do that, get everything on a wall and take a look at it. Kind of inevitably, I find business do that, think, oh my goodness, we really have to make a shift. It's a very powerful workshop. I couldn't agree more. And I see exactly the same with a variety of different businesses and clients that I work with, you know, especially if they're an established brand or they've been working yeah. personally within that organization for a period of time, their viewpoint of the category becomes quite Ooh. narrowed. 
And so they're looking at themselves and maybe the one or two other players within that. But they're not looking at the new entrants. They're not looking at the tertiary brands. They're not looking at brands in adjacent categories that might enter. And to your point, therefore, they're losing that context in which they are operating in and consumers are choosing from them. And I think it's not until the point you made earlier around oh, the category is now no longer in growth. What's going on? Do they sometimes have that need to accept that they need to really understand or look for a different angle, which to me would be an angle I would think that everyone would be doing, but not always the case? No, I mean, much rarer than one would imagine. As you say, one of the things I always say to marketers is we work very, very hard indeed to build our brand. And if we flog ourselves after death, then the customer might just about give a shit. We must never forget that our customers are not agonizing over our brand. They're often not even agonizing that much about the choices, depending on the category. Obviously, some categories are thought through purchases. Many are very, very quick, often not that rational, even though people post-rationalize. And we have to understand that we're fighting in a world where customers' lives are very full, very busy. They're not fixated about any brands much. Mm. Don't forget the customer doesn't really give a shit about you. So yes, you have to try very hard, but don't think that the customer is particularly bothered. I mean, we've perpetrated a lot of myths over the years, and I think it panders to perhaps the egos of marketers. I don't know. The one that is my particular favourite for debunking is that the customer wants engagement. They don't. They don't want engagement. They will engage if sufficiently incentivized to do so. But mostly, customers are pretty indifferent to your brand. There may be one or two exceptions, but most of us are working on brands that the customer hires to do a job. But that's about it, really. We mustn't get overblown on the sense of importance. That's not to neglect what we do. It's to understand that if we work really, really hard, we might just about get chosen in preference to something else. And not to get desperately bothered that customers spend two hours on our website, you know, if it isn't going to drive more business. We've been very vain over the years, I think. And some digital opportunities have made us that way because customers will spend two hours, you know, engaging with the brand. But to what purpose, really? Mm really. I had this conversation with the Cadbury team at one point. I think they'd done a new website. And Cadbury was a brand that people did have an appetite to be involved with, actually. But I think they had 200,000 users on this website. I worked out that in order to budge the brand share by 1%, that wouldn't be enough. Everybody on that website would have had to eat a whole other bar of chocolate every day to budge our market share by 1%. So what we do, you know, can we do something that gets greater scale and leads to better sales outcomes and not kid ourselves that we're in the entertainment business. We're not. We're making bars of chocolate. So I think there was a period of excessive vanity characterized by this notion that customers want engagement. It's nonsense. So you've helped many brands and businesses develop their brands or evaluate their brands or look at, to your point, how they can engage. What do you think the most common challenges either within the team or within the organization or within that understanding that you need to help them overcome before they can get to the space developing the brand. So you've mentioned obviously the vanity 
community, the understanding that consumers are indifferent to our brands, not always having that greater competitive context. What else do you feel like they're missing as the juices that you want to use to make the cocktail, if you will? All those things you need to bring together. Is it insight? Is it aligning as a team? Is it lack of context? What is it? What are the things that you find are the biggest challenges when you're doing that? Well, I think the biggest challenge is constant change. I think those brands that endure and succeed don't flip-flop their strategy and executions that quickly. So consistency over time, I think, is the objective. But how do you get that internally? I think you need proper analytic strategic thinking where what you identify as your customer insight or your right to win or your connection with culture or your differentiation is properly embedded in substance. It's not the result of half a dozen people in a room at a workshop making a decision. It has to be properly embedded. It has to then be fully bought into and embraced by the top whether that's the board, whether it's the chief executive or the management team, it cannot just be left to the CMO and the marketing team. That brand strategy has got to be fully, fully supported by an enduring entity in that organization, whether it's a board of directors, whether it's a senior leadership team. Because the risk, if you don't have it fully bought into and embedded, is that two years on, that there'll be some things that are going well, some things that are going badly. You'll get a new marketing director in who'll throw the baby out with the bathwater, reinvent everything. And there'll be nobody there to say, hang on a minute, you can't change all of this because some of the things that we all bought into are fundamentals and are true. So that's socializing at the most senior level. The strategy for the brand, I think, is huge. It was something we did incredibly well for Dove or Unilever with Ogilvy's help did incredibly well for Dove. And 20 years on, they still have the same strategy. The executions have varied, but the positioning of that brand is still the same. Likewise, the strategy I worked on at Cadbury, which was Share the Joy, is still the strategy for the brand 10 years on because it was well thought through, had substance to the thinking, and it was adopted at a very senior level that then don't permit whimsical change. So I think that's one of the big success factors that kind of companies underestimate. And again, it comes back to my original beef, really, depositioned as the job of the stupid people with crayons. It should be a fundamental part of any organization organization's business. And it needs to be taken seriously. The strategic aspects of the brand need to be taken seriously and fully embedded in the organization. Otherwise, it's going to change every five minutes. And no wonder the customer has got no real opinion on the brand and would choose any old thing instead. If it changes every two years, you know, you don't build that reputation and preference for that brand with customers over time. I couldn't agree more. And that's one of the things I loved about your book is that half of it is focused on the brand strategy before we get into the execution. Yes, it is so important. And actually what I do find sometimes, and it's particularly true of smaller businesses, they're in such a rush. I do very little consulting now, but partly because I don't particularly (laughs) enjoy it. But you know what I have found is that a business will come to me and go, should we be on TikTok? Should we be on Instagram? And I'm like, I have no idea. There's no answer to that question 
until we assess the fundamentals. And they're very impatient with that. You know, they want a solution. I mean, obviously, if the building's on fire or there's something that's going badly wrong, of course, you would seek to address that. But very often, people jump to minor modifications on execution and have never figured out what they want to stand for, what they're all about, what their overarching offer is to their customer. And until you do that, everything else is you'll be asking the same questions and making different decisions, depending on who's in the room at the time, if you haven't got those building blocks in place. So I'm very avid about setting up that key strategic piece first, because then all the decisions become easier. People think it will slow you down. It's the exact opposite. It will speed you up because you will understand why the logo should be red. You will understand whether we should be saying X or Y because you will have made all those decisions and you will have a magnetic north to navigate by in every decision you make subsequently. So you won't have decisions made and then unmade because they'll be made against a, a roadmap, if you like, or template. People think that doing all that upfront thinking will slow you down. My experience is it makes everything faster and better. So persuading people of that when they want to go on TikTok is something that can be something of a challenge. Mm, I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for speaking so openly and passionately about the role that brands should play in today's businesses. I'm going to ask you your career highs and lows in a second. But before I do, I have a question that I would really like to ask you personally. What were those other three books that you wrote but didn't publish? Oh, gosh. Right. Okay. So one of them was going to be called Corporate Geisha, and it was about gender in the workplace. One was about my experience of being single in my 50s. And uh, I think I was going to call it Bring Horse Tranquilizers and Viagra. Uh, as a <laughs> Do you know, I can't remember the third one. I can remember two of them. I love that. Oh, I love that. I'm so glad I asked. Great so titles for the book. Definitely. They would definitely catch my eye in a WH Smith's in the airport, for sure. Yeah, well, funnily enough, I had a great deal of difficulty persuading the publisher to call my current book the brand book because she didn't get the marketing gag. Anyway, I prevailed in the end. So there we are. Love it. Well, it is a great book and I encourage all listeners to go and grab a copy. Oh, thank you. I was talking to someone who's also read the book who also said, oh, have you read the book? Literally knowing what kind of marketing geek I am that I read, you know, over Christmas. I'm, I'm the person by the poolside reading marketing books. And I said, yes, she's coming on my podcast. But we both agreed it was the book that we had both wished that we had before we had entered into brand guardianship, as I like to call it. It has everything in it. So, Oh, thank you. Well, I, I did want to make it quite a comprehensive guide. And, and I hope people find it useful because I think the more people that can do this well, the better for our industry, actually. So, I, you know, I'm genuinely glad that people seem to like it. And I have had nice comment from CEOs and from entry-level marketers. So I'm glad people enjoy it. I really am. You should. It's a great book. <laughs> You so, want to ask me about career, career highs and lows. lows. Yes, I oh, do, Daryl. Yes, please. Yeah, let's go. Let's go. Let's go there. 
Well, career highs, I think uh, probably in, in time order, when I was at Lowe's, we were put on notice with our biggest account, which was the Vauxhall business at the time. And I was parachuted in to regain the trust of the client and to retain the business. And, you know, it would have decimated the agency and a lot of people would have lost their jobs if I hadn't succeeded, which we did. You know, we not only kept the business, but we also raised the bar on the creative work. So I'm proud of having done that. I did it with the most wonderful David Weldon, who I bet you've had on your podcast, who was my boss at the time. And we, we still are bonded after having that experience together. And that was a first thing. And I think it was a lot of responsibility and a very sort of human outcome if I'd failed at that point. So I think it was in my 30s, it was quite a big deal to feel that if I failed, somebody who had nothing to do with any of it would probably go home and tell his wife he'd lost his job and she would cry. So that was a very big weight of responsibility. And I, I took it very, very seriously. I think people often misunderstand me a bit because I'm quite jolly. I think they think I don't take what I do seriously. I take myself not very seriously, but I take what I do very, very seriously. And that was a very big big deal. I had a very similar experience, actually, when I moved to Ogilvy, when I just arrived, and there is no cause and effect here, we lost half the Ford business. And I was part of the team that began the fight back. And actually, we did get reappointed on the remaining half after two years, didn't do that alone. But I sort of held the fort for about 18 months, producing work that was actually really good, in particular, the Ford Transit commercial, which was not the most promising of starts. We had a great idea, which was Backbone of Britain, which I think they've come back to after all this time. We were left with the least exciting brands. And to make something of that opportunity when everybody was on their knees took a bit of grit, I suppose, and just a sort of determination never to say die. I do remember actually crying in my first meeting when I went to have a meeting with Ford, because we were still on half the business. And the first meeting that we went, having lost half of it, I did cry in the meeting. So that was slightly embarrassing. But you know, I was, I was upset. So those were two highlights, I suppose, you know, being in a really difficult situation and just being absolutely dogged at the objective and taking that objective very, very seriously. And you know, those were quite early, early responsibilities to have, I think, in my career. Duff, obviously, you know, I was one of the key parts of the leadership that created the campaign for real beauty from, you know, blank sheet of paper, no strategy, no nothing, to delivering the executions across 73 countries. And that was five years of my life. So I am proud of that. I do get invited to tell the true story of the Dove campaign, even now. And I feel slightly like Frank Sinatra singing my way when I do it. But people still like to hear, you know, inside story and the messes we got into rather than what's often portrayed in public, which makes it sound like the seamless logic of a bunch of geniuses. It was hard work. It was a muddle, but we had a sort of sense of direction and, and we got there in the end. And then I suppose I was particularly proud of the strategy I developed for the Vodafone brand. One of my colleagues showed it to the former CMO of Unilever just to see what he thought of it. And he, he thought it was world class. So I think it was a really, really good strategy for, for that business. As soon as I was out of the door there, they faffed about and changed everything again. 
weekend, which I think is a real shame. But to my earlier point, you know, brand consistency is pretty important. So those are some highs. Lows, long-term low of mine is that I'm incredibly task-orientated and have always been like kind of a long game player. We've got a really difficult job. It's going to take us a year. It requires doggedness and determination. That's the sort of thing I really like. And so I think because of that, I wasn't very people-orientated. And actually, quite a lot of my low points are where I wasn't desperately good at managing people in my team. And I learned most about that. And with lots of leadership training, I was given at Local V, actually, who managed to blend the task and the people very, very well as a business. And I was so task-orientated, I was probably neglectful of whether my team were happy. It came into sharp relief when I had one of those unfiltered 360-degree feedback performance review type things as part of a leadership program. And one of the questions asked was, what does this particular leader need to perform better? And one of the people who responded said psychotherapy, which was quite ouchy at the time. But so that was a, a particular low point. So I did need over the years just to get better at managing people. It was never that I wasn't kind or it was never that I didn't care. I just think I thought the task was so interesting that I forgot that everybody else wouldn't be as enthusiastic about the job as perhaps I was and, and just didn't pay attention to their particular needs for fun and lunches. And I'd be like, let's all work. It's so much more interesting than anything else we could be doing. So I think that's been a, a long, low theme for me. But eventually, I think I've got there. I slightly wish that somebody, you know, got my head and stuffed it down the toilet and flushed it on me when I was much younger. But, you know, you live and learn. And, and I think I have. It sounds like you have. And I think what I'll also add is that it sounds like it's also your super strength in that you are able to fully submerge into the brief, into the task at hand to really deep dive and come up with the answer. And it's just a watch out that sometimes while you're doing that, you're not bringing others with you. In yes, my opinion. I, I, think, I think that's exactly that's exactly right. And, you know, some people did come with me and I'm still friends with them. I think perhaps part of it is who I have on my bus, but you yes. don't get that choice. So I think it the mixture of things. And I think what I do now, which I needed to learn to do, was bring more of my home self to work, more of my slightly batty sense of humour, slightly more warmth. Because when I started in the industry, it was incredibly male. Mm. It was very professional, if you know what I mean. It was very, you don't bring your whole self to work. And that, that wasn't part of the culture at the time. And I always felt, and particularly running big car accounts and things like that. I always felt I was sort of competing with the men and that required a degree of hardness, which I don't think helped at all, actually. I think it was just entirely wrong-headed. And I think just bringing more of the kind of person I was at home to work became a real success. Once I started doing that, I became a lot more successful. It, it was as if by magic. And I think that that was a, a big aha moment. The other aha moment I had was 
how you criticize work. And of course, if you're driven for excellence, then you have to be able to critique things. And I think people took that quite personally. And I learned to do that more gently and reassuringly than I would have done when I was younger. I'd be going, that's not good enough. You know, we need to do this, this and this. People would go away thinking, oh, you know, Daryl thinks I'm crap, which I didn't. I was only talking about this particular work. I didn't see that people would take that very, very personally, I Mm, think. They were connected Um, to it. Yeah. And I think that drive for excellence, you know, you have to also put your arms around people while you're getting there with them. And that's the challenge. You can be kind, but that's not the same as being weak. Makes complete sense. And also sharing more of yourself doesn't make you weak either, but you're right. And you're not the first person I've heard talk about the need to hold themselves back or parts of them back because of the way that the profession was years ago. And it's changing, but it's still not quite there yet. And it's almost as if since the pandemic, everyone's realised the power of empathy and vulnerability. Those things have always been there. They've always been to generalise within women, but we've always been asked to kind of retain it or curb it. And now it's actually, oh no, you're allowed now. Now you're allowed. So we've been on a journey, haven't we? I think we're still on that journey, I have to say. And then a proud member of Wackle, I'm pretty avid about that particular agenda. And, you know, one of the things I've been saying for years is that 30% of women in senior positions is not a target. It's a minimum standard. We want 50%. (laughs) And I think even now, as you become more senior in an organisation, the gender balance shifts. And I think at a certain point in your career, you know, you wake up and suddenly it feels very different. And that inflection point is when you're suddenly in a situation where the women in the room are less than a third. The 30% is embedded in actually in social anthropology about what it takes for minority communities to have their values accepted. And I think that also is the drive for the 30%, if you like, the minimum standard to get some female values into the boardroom. And those female values often include integrity, actually. There are things that women have brought to boardrooms which are quite well documented. There are things that perhaps men bring very specifically, like they're more embracing of risk in general, I would say, which is a good thing if done appropriately. So I'm not in the camp of kind of women are marvellous and men are terrible. I think the blend is what brings the most advantage. But I think as you become more elevated in an organisation, suddenly things just become different. And I think a lot of women at that point, you know, don't find it as comfortable a place to be. They find it harder to be themselves. They're less included. And many of them leave and start their own businesses. So it is something that is improving. It's improved massively. The fight isn't over. We want 50% of senior roles in business to be women. And I think everyone will benefit from that. Um, But assimilation is quite a good strategy if you are in a minority, unfortunately. And I think when I was growing up in the business and was, you know, senior with a minority of women around the table, assimilation was the most effective strategy, be one of the boys. And that doesn't always make you authentic. 
So, so true. So, so true. And thank you for sharing so openly your own personal experience to help others. You're welcome. So as always with the podcast, Daryl, we always finish with the following question. And it feels a bit unfair to ask this question when you've given us so much advice. But the question is, what one piece of advice would you give to marketers of tomorrow? Be curious. (laughs) I love that. Would you like a longer answer? No, I think you're right. Be curious. Be curious. You heard it here on the Whole Marketer podcast. And thank you again, Daryl, for your time. You're super welcome. Thank you for tuning into the Whole Marketer podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do like, follow and share. The Whole Marketer is here to support and empower you and your teams with the latest technical skills, soft and leadership skills and behaviours and personal understanding for a successful, fulfilling marketing career and life as a whole. For support, resources and more information on how we can help you to become a Whole Marketer and build Whole Marketing teams, go to www.thewholemarketer.com.